Today is the second week of Advent. If you remember, Advent means the coming of someone or something significant. And so when, when we as a church are celebrating Advent, we're celebrating something amazing, something really significant in the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This year, through the, the preaching of the Word, we've been going through four Advent themes. Last week, we looked at hope. And then next week, we're going to look at joy. And the week after that, we're going to be looking at love. This week, our focus is on, on peace, that peace that comes through the Advent, the coming of Christ. And so for that, we're going to be in the Old Testament and the prophets, the book of Isaiah. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Isaiah. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And if you don't have your Bible, it's also printed in your bulletin before you. So Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Let's read. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers, the flower fades. I found topical sermons to be a little tougher. Part of that's because you start with an idea like peace, and then you realize that as you start to open up the scriptures and look at it, it's a very broad topic. It's an even broader topic in our, in our culture, and really every culture around the globe. And what we find quickly is that as a people in general, we don't have a great definition of peace. It seems to be moving. Uh, we tend to think of it as, as merely not war. In some sense, that's right. Uh, you probably heard the story of the Christmas Peace Treaty of 1914. That time, World War I had just begun a few months earlier, and the Allies in Germany are fighting and they're battling it out, and these guys are terrible enemies. Uh, and in this time, there's these series of trenches, and between those trenches where men were in them and, and, and doing this engaged in battle, and in between those trenches was an area called No Man's Land. On Christmas Eve of 1914, there was a, a truce. The German soldiers then began singing Silent Night in, in German. Uh, the Allies eventually joined in, and they were also singing Silent Night in, in English. The men on both sides eventually came out of these trenches. They gathered together in that no man's land, in the area in between, and what is surprising, they, they continued to sing more songs together about the birth of Christ. When thinking just hours earlier, these guys were trying to kill each other. That night they exchanged gifts. They participated in each other's burial services for, for men who had died previously. They even played soccer together. It's a beautiful story. But it's, it's not the meaning of Christmas. You see, that following day the war resumed and they went right back to trying to kill each other. The peace was very, very temporary. Uh, we're going to see today that when God speaks uh, of peace in our context, in the context of this passage we're looking at, it's something greater, something permanent. And we need to also be careful that we don't bring into the scripture when we're doing something topical like this our own definitions. We, we must understand that peace is lack of war, but it's also much, much more than that. Uh, in the Hebrew culture, the word peace had this wider significance. So much so that it was, it's one of the few Hebrew words that 
Americans actually know. You've heard it before, shalom. It's a greeting. Something you say when you walk up to someone and you're saying hello. It's also something you say when you leave someone. It's almost like the Hawaiian word, hakuna matata. No worries. I lost you in the Lion King there, didn't I? It's a statement of, of what we desire for the person we're speaking to to have. Peace. All right, you back from Lion King? The word peace, then, was such a part of the early church that every single letter that Paul wrote included this greeting at peace at the beginning. Grace and peace to you. You can go look it up at some point. Uh, it's in the first or second paragraph of every single letter he's written. That's shalom. That's what he's saying. It means many things. It means to be at peace in your life, to have no fear, to have this sense of safety, to be at harmony with God, in harmony with each other, in harmony with your neighbors. It's this closeness to God. But as I said before, the word peace is used all around the world. In fact, people are pretty obsessed with the concept of peace. Think about it. Nearly every beauty queen ever, who's ever been asked the question, what would your one wish be, responds with what? World peace. Also, since 1901, there's been an award given out to whoever's done the most to promote and keep peace in the world. Now, you know it as the Nobel Peace Prize. For what it's worth, it's, I actually looked this up to make sure it's never been given to a beauty queen. There's a logo for the concept of peace. We have a hand sign. Peace. In 2011, NBA player Ron Artest actually legally changed his name to Meta World Peace. Yet, like most people, he lost interest in peace, and uh, he right now is in the process of changing his name to The Panda's Friend. So that's gone. I wish it was a joke. It's not. He really is. Uh, <laughs> what I want us to see today is, is much more important than the world's ideas of peace. What we see in our text is this promise of peace that is more significant than anything else in the history of the world. These words might be familiar to you. They're part of the well-known musical piece, Handel's Messiah. I know when I hear them, I almost want to sing it out. It's hard to read this text. I'm so used to hearing it sung. And really, it's the, the part of Handel's Messiah that, in my opinion, is really just the best part. So as we begin, I want to make sure that you understand that while our text that we're looking at is about Christ... It's also not talking about Christ. Let me explain that. Isaiah is a prophet. And we tend to think of a prophet as someone who, who just tells the future. Sometimes that's the case, but really a prophet is someone who speaks the word of God on behalf of God. And so Isaiah is a prophet, and his ministry is to speak the word of God. But let me set the context of his ministry. You remember the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And then God sends these plagues, right, to Pharaoh? And at the end of those plagues, the last one was, was the Passover. Uh, then the Israelites escape from Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. The sea buries everyone underwater behind them. You think they're free, right? They wander through the desert for a while. And then eventually they get to the Promised Land. And, and God begins to do battle for them as they claim this land. He knocks down the walls of Jericho. And at this point, they, they establish the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. And then the Israelites get discontent. They're not satisfied in who God is. And they want a king. They want a king just like everybody else. And God says, that is a terrible idea. And like prideful children, they say, we want a king anyway. And God gives them that king. King Saul and 
King David and King Solomon. And then, and then soon after that, a civil war breaks out, and Israel becomes the name of the, the northern ten tribes. And Judah becomes the name of the southern two tribes. And so suddenly, as this war breaks out, you've got Jews that are, are hating each other. And they all have their own king. Next thing we know, the Assyrians attack the, the northern tribe and the Egyptians come in. Uh, yep, again, coming back and attacking. Remember this, though, that Isaiah is a prophet. And, and as a prophet, he's talking to the tribe of Judah, the, the southern two tribes of Israel. Isaiah holds this position for 50 years, and he speaks the word of the Lord to five different kings. And so this text we're looking at today, he's talking to the second of those five kings. He's speaking to King Ahaz. King Ahaz was 20 years old. Some of you are that age, when he became king, king of Judah. Uh, He ruled for 16 years. He's a bad king. He, He basically said, I don't need God. You know, I've got this. I can do it on my own. And Isaiah has been telling him that right now, now is the time to repent, Ahaz. And the people, in fact, do repent, the people of Judah. But their, their king, King Ahaz, will not. He refuses. And so that's where our text comes in, because Isaiah here is starting to tell them about a future time, a time when, when things are going to be better. In chapter 7, verse 14 We read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in our text, chapter 9, we start to learn about this child who is yet to be born. It says he's going to be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It says that his rule and his peace will go on forever. Now, remember the context of this statement. Because much of this actually becomes true in the birth of the next king, Hezekiah. That's the king after the bad king of Ahaz. Hezekiah grows up, he becomes king of Judah, and Israel, the northern tribes, actually come down and attack. Again, Assyria, all these battles happen over and over again. They take on Israel, and afterwards, there's peace in this land for a while. And you start to see, okay, some of this prophecy is coming true in in the life of Hezekiah. And I, I mention this because I want you to understand that the people who originally heard this prophecy didn't understand it as clearly as we do today. They would have seen it referring to, to Hezekiah, but, but also understood that some of these statements uh, about him were beyond him. They couldn't be about him. Uh, we today have this benefit uh, of living in a time with information they didn't have. You know, we, we've got the New Testament, and it's almost like these special glasses that you put on to help you see things that you'd miss with your bare eyes. And when we read the Old Testament, we have the benefit of doing so through this lens of Christ. And, and that's the way Jesus viewed the Old Testament. If you remember after his, his resurrection from the grave, Jesus is walking and he's walking with the disciples and they're having this conversation. And he says to them in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, O foolish ones, you slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And listen to this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he takes them back to the Old Testament and starts to show them, that's about me, that's about me. And Jesus says, texts like what we're looking at today, this Isaiah passage, is ultimately about him. 
And so while it's, it's partially about King Hezekiah, it, it's not fulfilled in King Hezekiah. For instance, the text says this kingdom and peace will never end. Well, that didn't happen with Hezekiah. He died, and his son Manasseh was an evil king. Now, this prophecy isn't fulfilled until Jesus' life. And that's why in 14 times in the book of Matthew, the author is telling us that Jesus is fulfilling something that the prophet spoke of. Uh, that word, fulfill, uh, it's to take something that's partially, maybe even, even halfway done, and to fill it up all the way, you get the image of a glass. To fulfill it is to take it all the way, to complete it. It's about completion. And so what Isaiah prophesies in our text is made partially complete in King Hezekiah, but made fully complete only in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's consider how Christ is the ultimate fulfillment uh, of this prophecy, and particularly how he brings this never-ending peace that's been promised in these two verses. As humans, we are not naturally at peace with God. We are born sinful, selfish, and so we are not born into a place of peace with God. Romans 8-7 speaks about our being hostile towards God. Romans 5-10 speaks about how God reconciled us through the gospel, and it says, while we were still enemies of God. Being an enemy of God is the exact opposite of being at peace with God. And what's sad to me is, is how lightly our culture treats sin. As though it's, it's no big deal. Well, our sin is a big deal. It's a very big deal. What we learn in the scriptures is that all people are either children of God or enemies of God. And, and to be an enemy of God is a very very scary thing. It's difficult to get our minds around how badly we need peace with God. And I confess, any illustration that I give you is going to fall short because there is nothing quite like being an enemy of the creator of the universe. And so there's nothing quite like finding real peace with God. But I'll give it a, a try. When I was in the sixth grade, there was this one guy who was huge. His name was Donnie Guidry. He was big to begin with, but he'd also been held back a year, and he was just massive. I didn't know him real well. I went to a pretty large junior high, but that didn't stop me one day from calling him a name I should not have called him. When I was talking to some guys near the end of school, the last week of school, and that information got back to him, and he was pretty angry about it. I immediately became an enemy of Donnie Guidry. And that was not a safe place to be. I, I was absolutely terrified. I was so nervous going to school that week. I was afraid to go down the hallways because I thought he might be down this hallway and he will kill me. I got passes to leave my classes early, and then I'd get to the next class before the bell ever rang so that I wouldn't be in the hallway where he might find me. The last day of school, I started hearing from people, Donnie brought rolls of pennies today. And I'm thinking, what, is he going to throw pennies at me? Turns out you put a roll of pennies in your hand and it makes you hit people harder. So I was not excited about that. <laughs> he also brought these brass knuckles. It's brass that you wear here, so when you hit someone, it hurts them a lot worse. And I don't know where a sixth grader in 1990 gets brass knuckles, but he, he had them. I remember looking down the main hallway and seeing him, like looking at his fists, checking them out, and then I ran. I was so anxious that day that I, I couldn't even enjoy the fact that there was no schoolwork and I was at school. 
I was just ready to get home, to get someplace where it'd be safe. And the day came to an end, and I had escaped him. I had escaped the threat of Donnie Guidry. And the reality, though, was, was this. I was still an enemy of Donnie Guidry. And that went with me all summer. I was so anxious all summer. It really was weighing on me. I thought of these solutions in my head, and none of them really worked out in reality. And it would just consume my thoughts. I went to Arkansas to spend some time with my aunt, and I thought, maybe I'll just stay here and go to school. I wonder if my parents would be okay with that. And so then the first day of of seventh grade, I felt sick having to go back there. Back where my enemy was. I couldn't be out of his presence. I knew I was a dead man, and my only hope is that maybe he wouldn't be in any of my classes. So I, again, I tiptoed around all day long. Finally, I get to the seventh, the last period of the day. Uh, The bell rings. He's not in my class. I'm so relieved. In fact, I hadn't seen a sign of him all day. I was afraid to ask anyone about him. I thought, maybe, maybe Donnie no longer goes to school here. Maybe he moved away. I don't know. And then about five minutes into the class, after the bell had rung, the door opens, and it's, it's Donnie Guidry. My heart just sunk. He scans the room, looking around for a place to sit. Uh, there's two or three options, but of course, he chooses a seat right next to me. And he sits down, and, and I just kind of glance over at him, and uh, he says to me, hey, what's up? And I start, and Donnie, I am so sorry for what I said about you. And, and I just start in this apology. He's like, he just responds, I, it's fine. Don't worry about it. We're good. I had stressed. I had been anxious and fearful all summer long because I was the enemy of this guy who could destroy me. And my aunt and my friends told me, don't worry about it. Just relax. Don't worry about it. I couldn't do that. None of that brought any peace to my life because it didn't change the fact that I was still an enemy of Donnie Guidry. The first moment I felt any real peace was that moment that I was no longer an enemy of this beast of a seventh grader who could absolutely destroy me. You see, we're enemies of God from birth. We've sinned against God. We can't escape him. And the only hope that we have is that we might be made no longer enemies of God. And and that's the significance of the advent. Jesus comes to bring peace, ultimately peace between sinful men and women and children and, and their creator, our holy God. What Jesus' coming accomplishes for his people is is real and lasting peace. We see this very thing in Ephesians 2, 13 and 17. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, turn over there real quick. New Testament, the epistles. You can stop by and see the word peace in the first chapter if you want. Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 17. I want you to see this. Uh, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, listen to this, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Uh, Like we said, we're born at war with God, not peace. He not only made peace possible, but, but Jesus accomplished that peace for us. 
through the gift of faith, we have peace with God. That's the prophecy in our text today, and that's the message that we see clearly throughout Scripture. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand this? If you don't have peace with God today, what this means is that you can have peace with God. You can be made no longer an enemy of your Creator. Also, if your faith is in Christ, you are right now no longer an enemy of God. Let that set in. When I received peace with Donnie Guidry in the seventh grade, the first thing I did was let out this sigh of relief, just this that weight rolled off my back. I, I felt lighter. I could breathe deeply again. That's what the coming of Christ to redeem his people does for us, only at an infinitely higher level. At the South Parish Group last Thursday, as we shared prayer requests, this, this theme came to light. We're an anxious people. We're, we're stressed out, worried about grades and anxious about the faith of those we care for, stressed about parenting, afraid of the future. It's a room full of, of women and, and men, myself included, who are at peace with God, and yet here we are just deeply anxious just the weight of the world that we seem to be carrying around and that tells me that we haven't rested in the peace of God like we should like we can and I don't say that as a statement of shame but to remind us of just how amazing that peace with God really is in Galatians 5 22 and 23 the fruit of the spirit is listed these are characteristics that we have as a result of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and here's what it says. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Did you catch that third one? Peace. We have peace. And we can grow in these areas as well. That's, that's part of the sanctification process. And so let me suggest that we make an effort uh, to pray for and, and to pursue a, a greater peace in our lives during this Advent season. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, we looked at it just a few weeks back. There the Word of God tells us to bring to God whatever it is in our lives that is creating anxiety in our hearts. To bring these things to Him through prayer. And so listen, you were born an enemy of God, but, but at the coming of Christ and His life and death and resurrection, all of that received through faith, you have been made children of God. If your faith is in Christ, you are a child of God. And so now when we go to God in prayer, we should speak to him like a loving and caring and powerful father because that's who he is. And the result of this, of our going to God as children, we learn in Philippians 4 is that we receive the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. So do you see how this all connects? What that means is that Jesus offers us rest in a world where we feel unrest. The story of the Christmas Peace Treaty of 1914 is amazing. But like we mentioned before, it was temporary. It lasted one evening and then went right back into war. The peace that Jesus gives us with God is not temporary. It will last for all of eternity. And that's the basis of peace in our lives. We forgive others the sins they have against us because we have been forgiven of greater sins against God. We have peace with others because we dwell in peace with God. 
Even in our, our liturgy, the order of the, the worship service, the way we put this together, do you ever notice that we don't call it a, a meet and greet time? That's not what it is. You, you get up and you do meet and greet, but that's not why it's in our liturgy. We call it the passing of the peace. It, it's intentionally after we have confessed our sins together, after we've confessed our sins individually, and after we've heard the words of assurance that come straight from the Word of God that are confirming to us the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And we do this because being at peace with God is what facilitates our peace with others. Let me close with a little reminder. With peace comes rest. But often the Christmas season is, about, is a time of unrest. It's, it's depressing for people. This time of year, depression actually goes up. It's a time when we realize what we lack materially and relationally. The marketers know this. They appeal to our unrest, our lack of satisfaction, our lack of contentment, really the lack of peace in our lives. And, and really we are too easily convinced that if we get this product, if we have this subscription uh, to that service, only then will we be satisfied. So I encourage you this year, don't take the bait. Preach to yourself. In the coming days, preach to yourself. In the coming weeks, preach to yourself. That even if you fail that class, you're at peace with God. Rest in the truth of that statement. Even if the future doesn't go as you desire or as you planned, you, if you are in Christ, are at peace with God. Rest in the knowledge that the God of the universe, your creator, has made peace with you through the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then exhale. Feel the weight of the world lifted off your shoulders as we rejoice in the peace that has come at the advent of Jesus Christ.